two people submitted some questions, and so I'm going to tackle both of them. I have not done much prep around the answers. I'm going to read them, and I'm going to go on gut instinct. First, I want to say thank you for the awesome content and energy on the podcast. So far, I haven't found anything even close to the content on this podcast. Facilitation is my dream job, but I do most of my dreaming at my nine to five office job. I'm an introvert and often wonder if there is room for introverts in facilitation. And maybe a more general second part to that question would be, how do you manage to stay genuine in a sort of performancey profession. Looking forward to hearing your perspective. It's a great question, and I think you would be surprised to find out that a lot of people in our industry, in the facilitation world, are naturally introverted and have to perform in the extroverted way. So, speaking as myself, and I've mentioned this in a previous episode about facilitation anxiety and nerves, that I get nervous all the time before I'm doing a program. It doesn't matter if it's working with a youth program or a corporate group or well-known people or adults doing a technical training. It really doesn't matter to me, partly because social anxiety is a large part of my life. I had it all throughout my teen years, and I still have it today. It's one of those things that people can't say, hey, stop being nervous, like I can turn it off. It I'm going to be nervous before programming, before performing, as you mentioned, because absolutely this profession is performance-based. There will be moments, especially when I'm at conferences, where I'm just going to end up trying to perform as best as I can to try to get energy and get my message across. So there is a performance element to this, 100%. So in answer to the question, is there room for introverts in facilitation? The answer is absolutely yes. And I would highly encourage the more variety of kind of people in this field because I think bringing in new people into the industry is only going to be enhanced by the people facilitating being a mirror to those who we are facilitating. So I, in terms of challenge course programming, I can relate this in a certain way, that people often are nervous if they're coming to do belay training, that maybe if they're scared of heights, they wouldn't be good belayers. And I almost think it's somewhat the opposite. Those people who are really confident in the air aren't the best at being able to empathize when their participants are also going to be nervous in the air. So having that empathy level really does help in terms of that world of facilitation. And I would say, as an introvert, when I see people performing, and I'll own that I'm not great at necessarily advocating that I am nervous, Um, when I am in that performance mode. But especially if I've been doing multiple two-day trainings, I will mention that, you know, especially if I'm doing an activity like challenge zones, and I've mentioned that in several episodes, I'll add in that lens that I am relatively uncomfortable or have a level of discomfort about meeting new people for the first time. If you ever go to a conference, and if I'm ever there at conference, I really do not like going to the mingling sessions where it's a, like new time, new first-time attendees or any of that stuff, where people are really sociable in those clicky groups, and there's like people drinking in circles. I That stuff uh, stresses me out in a big way. So I'm not going to go into those. So when I come up on stage, you know, or I'm coming up to perform in front of a group, 
absolutely, I'm transitioning from that introverted self to the extroverted personality in order to do that performance and in order to facilitate. And there are things that I've done that I will do continuously to improve upon that and to make myself more comfortable. And I have absolutely got more comfortable doing it. There was a conference that I led, a, I think I was doing the play note, which is like a activity-based keynote for a conference. And 20 minutes before that conference, I went to the bathroom and threw up because of how nervous I was. And then I came out and performed and no one would have known that 20 minutes ago I threw up. Now, that's not to say that that's the ideal. That's certainly not what I want to keep doing every time. But the more I practice, the more I do it, the more I perform, the more I facilitate, the less nervous I find I am. And even though I am more comfortable in the introverted state, I'm able to step into a more sociable, extroverted state. And I don't think extrovert means you're sociable and introvert means you're not sociable. I just mean I can demonstrate it in a way that people wouldn't know that I'm an introvert at heart. So things that I think that could improve your ability to uh, facilitate and be able to represent yourself more authentically in the space, even though you're performing, is one, just to own it. I think it's the authenticity part is pretty essential to facilitation. I think you can grab a lot of information from watching other people facilitate, but at the end of the day, you're going to end up doing your own authentic version of whatever you've seen. And so owning it is, I think, is pretty important. When I am nervous, I like to tell people I'm nervous. I don't think that that makes that makes me feel less than in the eyes of them. And that's honestly how I used to feel. Like if I can't be, I can't be the expert in this group and then also be nervous, those things are contradictory to each other. And I'm not sure that's true. I think you can be an expert in your industry and also be nervous about presenting it. Because those two things are different skill sets. Knowing something and then being able to show that to someone or share it, two different things. But you're going to get better at it the more you uh, perform. I say that in in quotation marks. So experience, really helpful. But the other thing I recommend is getting into your agenda, which something that I've referred to as a golden activity or a golden sequence of activities. Because in reality, I have my first four or five connection-based activities that I facilitate. I do them every single time, every single group. And I just slightly alter the framing to meet the needs of the group that I'm working with. But I was recently at training and I said to my co-facilitator at the time, Sam, I said to her, I bet I can almost guarantee you know what I'm going to be doing first. And she listed out the four activities that I do to me without seeing my agenda. That's how often I've used them. And what I said to her is that she'll end up finding her versions of that, like whatever makes her feel comfortable. And those are your golden activities. They work almost every single time. Sometimes they might not, but almost every single time they're going to work. And they make you feel more comfortable because you've done them over and over again. I did one time try to add in an activity that I saw someone else do. I thought, oh, you know what? I'll add it in the first morning. And because I hadn't practiced it, because it wasn't authentically me, when I ended up doing it and performing it, it kind of flopped and I felt shaky. And all it did is make me feel more and more nervous. That was not helpful in that moment at all. So find activities that work for you. 
they're scripted in a way that you'll remember them so you're not having to worry about them. And then you were able to start your performance because that will set you off on the right path. For me, I like to add in jokes that's going to bring in a bit of laughter. And that helps alleviate any tension that I might feel as well, both in myself and also um, those that I work with. So the combination of experience, I think uh, co-facilitation is helpful too, because you can work with someone else. And then also coming up with activities you know well, that's going to improve your ability to uh, perform without some of the nervousness that you might have um, as maybe an introvert or someone like myself who has anxiety. And I know that you'd ever implied that when you were saying you're an interview. I'm just adding that is my lens. And I'm just going to make sure I've answered that second question. And maybe a more general second part of that question would be, how do you manage to say genuine in a sort of, yeah. So I've, I think I've somewhat said the piece around being authentic. I think it's, that's kind of key. And then finding activities or a flow that works for you. Uh, both of those things are going to be helpful. And yeah, it's performancy. Next question. I'll take a sip of tea. It's these kind of sound effects that I think really enhance the podcast experience because now you feel really immersed that you know that I'm just sitting at a table drinking a tea and reading questions. What's your favorite icebreaker question? My favorite question to ask in an icebreaker is the story of your name. So I might pair people up, do some kind of paired activity, and then I'll ask them to exchange with their partner the story of their name. And essentially what that means is you would share how you got the name you have now, if you know what your parents, why your parents named you, what you're called, you can share that. If you've got a nickname, you can share that. If you know the etymology, like the origin of the name, then you can share that as well. The reason I like that is that most it's not forcing people to come up with a answer that they maybe weren't somewhat aware of they either know it or they don't know it people like to often share about in like that kind of information as well because once again you're either, you've either know it or you don't there's no nuance to it and i also like that it's information that you very very rarely share so it's not something that you go up to someone and say hey my name is phil do you want to know why like that question it doesn't ever come up. And I actually would challenge every single one of you listening to maybe do that with someone, see how it goes, maybe a stranger and see how that goes and then report back to me. And that way I'll know to either do it or avoid it. But I like that as a icebreaker question. Best closing to a single day or less program you've ever experienced. One of the best things that I've seen someone do recently was uh, solo reflection. So not ending with this like really high tick energy thing where you just want to get like a big screaming hurrahs and all that kind of stuff, but just having people take a journal, give them some question prompts and let them just sit and write and reflect upon their own experience. And then when they came back to the group, they didn't share what they wrote. They shared how that experience felt. And it was kind of very cool and impactful how sitting in silence and just self-reflecting on the entire day, how that was valuable. Not just the silence, because there's a lot of energy often in a day program, but also it gave them that 
time to be able to reflect and really think about what that what impact it made. Which I think is unique. Sometimes you think like you do all this activity and then they're off on the bus and you're waving and it was all high energy. And it didn't allow the people to actually like almost lower the tone a little bit to allow for self-reflection. So that's something I've seen that I've started to incorporate. I like the idea of, I always think about when I'm planning a program in terms of flow, like an energy layer, where are the peaks and the trough of the energy? And I actually kind of like, even though this is on the lower end, to end with a lower end piece, because I think it has more of a reflective tone to it than sometimes a big celebratory end. Okay, let's see what else. Most underappreciated skill or capacity you think great facilitators have? I'm not sure it's it's underappreciated, but I do think it's underrepresented or referenced in terms of when we, when I see people being taught facilitation, and that is listening. I think the best facilitators are those who speak less and listen more, and it's something I myself is still working on. Not speaking a lot and allowing time to listen to what people are being said or what is being said by participants. But I've been amazed sometimes where a a facilitator will have heard something and I will have totally missed it. Like if I'm co-facilitating, they'll bring something up and say, well, when you mentioned this, and I'll be like, what? When did they mention that? And that reminds me that I'm not listening enough. That sometimes... I'll set an activity and then I'll be worrying about all the next part of my agenda. So I'll kind of let them do their stuff and then I'll come to the group and go, okay, how did that go? And I realized I wasn't paying attention as much. So I would encourage more people to listen, speak less and listen more. What's something you're bad at and are working on improving? I think I sort of like just touched on it in the previous episode, previous episode, classic Phil podcast brain. Something I mentioned in the previous question was that idea of listening. So it's still something I'm really working on listening and being able to cultivate a really good question that can capitalize on the experience that people have had. That's the tough part. A lot of people struggle with the reflection part and they feel like I'm better at it than I was, but it's certain something that I'm definitely still working on. I think, yeah, listening to what's being said by the participants and cultivating a really good question at the end of it. I will give a shout out to Meg that Meg has a product called Facilitator Cards, and they are essentially cards designed for facilitators, as which will allow you to have prompts. So when you're planning out your workshop you can use these to remind yourselves. And there are sections around reflection and cards set around this idea. So facilitator cards might help me in this process. And the last question, what's your process for when you have a bad day? I don't know if this is in regards to like, if you're having a bad day when you start the program or if you have a or if the program goes bad and you're trying to reflect after the fact, but yeah, we're human, right? So there's lots of times when I'll go to a program and I'll honestly think it's a dud because my energy wasn't great. I think that the reality is most of the time, if I, you know, we talked about Faggy's question earlier about performance. I think I'm able to, even if I'm having a bad day, shut that part of way 
for a bit and then go into performance mode. And most of the time in the work that we do, the energy of the group that I work with helps me. So if I'm having a really bad day at the start, then by the time I get to the program, I'm feeling way better about myself after the fact. So facilitating for me can sometimes be a bit of a salve, a little bit of therapy in terms of me having a bad day. And actually it's something I've missed through the last year since things have been reduced in terms of programming. I think to an extent facilitating programs and working with groups in this way is a therapy for lots of different things, my anxiety, my introvertness, and also if I'm having a bad day. If I have a bad day because of the program, uh, I'm not good at being able to reconcile some of that and be and be able to put it off as a one-off. I'll be heavily critical. Yeah, that's maybe not the best thing to do, but that's me being honest in that moment. Yeah, I'm, I I take those uh, those negatives sometimes a little hard. Talking about it can help, and so I have a good team around me, and so I can give them information and be able to talk about it. In a previous episode, talking about Beth Watson, with Beth Watson about feedback, she references this idea of when you get negative feedback, when people will try to say, like, ah, ignore that, doesn't mean anything, like, Actually, let give yourself time to process that feedback. Think about areas that you could still improve, areas where there was accuracy in that. Most of the time when I, I'm i not on my A game, I sort of know it anyway. And so being able to reconcile that and think about how I could prove it for next time. As mentioned before, we're works in progress. So awesome. Thank you, Meg, for that question. And thank you once again, Faggy and all those people who wrote reviews. Super helpful. So this is how you can, if you want me to do another episode like this and you want to submit a question to me, request questions or submit questions to two places and I will be able to read those immediately and start cultivating this next episode. So those two places are our email, which is podcast at highfiveadventure.org. That's podcast at H-I-G-H, the number five adventure.org. And you can also direct message me on Instagram at Vertical Playpen. I'm excited to see any more questions that you submit. This was kind of fun. I enjoyed doing this. This was kind of a random thing that I didn't really plan on. But it was enjoyable. And I hope that you got some value out of these questions. Have a great week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, send us a review. Send us a questions. Love that stuff. Keep connecting. Thanks all. Bye. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs>